Hello and welcome to episode 1891 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rally of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. Yesterday, we talked about whether Tony La Russa had, in fact, forgotten to insert a pinch runner until he was reminded by a fan who was shouting from behind home plate, as a video seemed to suggest. Well, Lurusa has responded to that question, and he says no, <laughs> perhaps unsurprisingly. So James Fegan, who covers the White Sox for The Athletic, tweeted, Larusa said he was slow pinch running angle for Jimenez last night because of a debate with Miguel Cairo and Jerry Naren about needing Jimenez's bat later in what was still a tie game. He got a kick out of being told about a fan yelling suggestions, but said he didn't hear it. Yeah, I bet he didn't. It's loud there, you know? It is loud. Yeah. Yeah, like, I feel like we entertained this in the spirit of whimsy because Mm -hmm. we are, you know, we're proponents of whimsy. But, like, it didn't strike me as probable that this is actually what had happened. And I know that there are definitely instances where we're heckling. You know, it pierces the, the veil that stadium noise can bring, right? Where it's like, it's just loud enough. There's just enough of a quiet. There's just this and that. But, like... I'm just going to attribute it to the ballpark being loud and him like being focused mm-hmm. on his job and him not having heard it. Like, I, sure. I think that that's I think that's reasonable. Right. I buy it. Yeah. I mean, the fact that many people, I think, saw the video and drew the conclusion that he had right. heard the fan, that it was plausible that that was the case. Again, we only got the view of the fan. We didn't get the view of Larusa. We didn't have a camera or audio of the deliberations. So we had one shot and then another shot, and we were making a leap from one to the other. But the fact that that sort of stuck to him maybe in a way that it wouldn't for most other managers is perhaps a sign of a season that has not gone as planned, although the White Sox have been winning of late. Things have been going better for them. But maybe that says something about just what fans think of your performance in general. Granted, not many managers are super popular with fans. I mean, things have to be going really well with your team for the fan base not to feel like they could be better tacticians than the manager of the team probably is. But Tony Rissa, because of a few notable instances this season, he has come under fire more than most. So I think this was sort of a perfect storm of a suggestive video and a manager who many people are primed to think the worst of as a tactician at this point anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is always, uh, gosh, I'm trying to think where I first heard this expression, it might have been on your wrong about like, it's always interesting what we don't need evidence to believe, right? Mm-hmm. And there's, there's some evidence here that he might have done a thing because, uh, you know, we have video, we have video of a guy shouting a thing at him and, and then that mm-hmm. thing happening. Yep. But yeah, it's not great. It doesn't fill you with confidence that people were like, yeah, that could be true. You know, that mm-hmm. could be, you don't want to, you don't want that. You don't, you don't want that to be the baseline opinion of you. That seems bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this seems like someone will make a t-shirt about like, oh yeah, <laughs> has me, you know, my, my not taking suggestions from the fans in the stands t-shirt has people asking a lot of questions already answered by my shirt or yes. however that goes. But yes, I noted that it was plausible that there was another explanation when we first discussed it. Just wanted to get it on the record. Larusa was asked about it. That's just good journalism by James. Just go straight to the source there. Get Larusa on the record. 
word. And now we know what he says and we can all draw our conclusions accordingly. So another thing I've been monitoring is Joey Gallo versus Andrew Benintendi. (laughs) Yeah. Since Gallo went from the Yankees to the Dodgers and Benintendi went from the Royals to the Yankees, mostly I'm interested in how Gallo has done just because I got more invested than I have been in Joey Gallo's well-being in some time. Like he was someone I was very interested in as a prospect just because he was so extreme and such an outlier in maybe multiple respects. And I wrote a big piece about him even before he was in the majors. And then he was just a pretty solid, productive player and low batting average, high OPP sort of slugger and lots of homers. And it was fun. And then things really ran off the rails with the Yankees. And we read the quotes, which were much more frank than you typically hear from ballplayers and did not sound like he was in the best state of mind. And so that made me root for Joey Gallo. Now, that made some Yankees fans probably pile on (laughs) Joey Gallo and some comments that were made that were interpreting what he was saying as blaming the fans, which I don't think he was really doing. He was fully owning up to how bad he had been as a Yankee and was clearly quite bummed about it. He was not saying, why are these people booing me? I've been great. So the fact that he was criticized for those comments, I thought probably did not do wonders for his state of mind, which was already not the best. Anyway, Since he has escaped to Los Angeles, he's been great. (laughs) Yeah. It's nine games and it's 26 plate appearances, so don't make too much of it. But he's slugging 696 with a 186 WRC plus and a few dingers during that time. Now, you know, he's struck out in almost 40% of his plate appearances, but that's what Joey Gallo will do. And you will live with that if he's socking some dingers, which he is. So that's fun. Because when we talked about those trades that the Yankees made, we noted that Gallo, if anything, was projected to be better than Benintendi was. And, of course, the Yankees did not believe those particular projections. And maybe they shouldn't have because when you have a player who's coming out and making statements like that, that seems like a reason why maybe you might know something that the projections do not. (laughs) Zips and Steamer cannot take into account the quotes that Joey Gallo was giving to people prior to that trade. Right. So now what I'm wondering is, in a way, this almost confirms the idea that there was something about New York like – If you're Joey Gallo in this situation, obviously you want to stop slumping and start hitting and contribute to a great team here. But in a way, if he leaves New York and suddenly a switch flips, it's like he was doing pretty well in Texas. Then he got traded to New York and started slumping and then started slumping worse. Then he gets shipped out elsewhere. People are going to draw the conclusion, oh, it definitely was New York and he couldn't handle New York, which I suppose is more fair than it often is just based on the things that he was saying to that effect. But (laughs) I love that it's always, look, I don't want to cause any problems for us. You're a native New Yorker. I I lived there for five years. I love New York. This is not an anti-New York take. (laughs) But I love that we're always like, he couldn't handle New York and not like, Maybe New York was bad to him. Like, you know, like maybe maybe New York was the problem, not Joey Gallo. I don't know. I'm just asking questions. <laughs> I just know that people get so exercised when anyone who has lived in New York and then leaves New York and entertains being happier in other places. Mm-hmm. People get exercised about that, Ben. Like they mm-hmm. get they get worked up. And look, you get to love where you're from. 
and you get to have pride of place. A lot of people have pride of place. I think there are places where that is less like an entire personality, you know, but there are probably other places where it's as much your entire person. <laughs> We're going to get emails. <laughs> I'm just saying that if some of you believed the John Updike quote like a little bit less, I think the Jets would be allowed to be good. You know, I think yeah. God's saying, no, uh-uh, we got to have some, we need to learn some lessons. We got to well, teach some lessons. There definitely is a pride of place involved in and maybe an excessive pride because oh, yeah. I think New Yorkers like the idea, at least some New Yorkers, that there are people who can't, can't handle New it. York, right? Yeah, they you can't know? take it. And it's like, yeah. I don't know, maybe they just don't want every random mishap and inconvenience to cost $500 <laughs> every time for no reason. You're like, this seems like it should be a minor problem, but I just paid half a month's rent. No, sorry, not half yeah. a month. Wh- who is yeah. paying $1,000 in New York? Joey Gallo was not complaining about the cost of living as far as I saw. Although but... <laughs> he, he did complain about the size of the apartments mm, mm-hmm. and people got very worked up about that and look yeah he's not part of your crew anymore right he's not on your roster he's not one of your guys and so if this facilitates your transition from him being one of your guys who you yelled at a lot to a different people's guys (laughs) group Mm -hmm. of people's guy who you also are going to yell at a lot like god bless you that's fine everybody Mm -hmm. gets to navigate fandom in their own way but i'm just saying like People live other places and aren't miserable. It's fine. It doesn't mean that you have to feel less proud of where you're from. I'm just saying you could like right, acknowledge the fact that some people move here and are miserable. Well, that just brings warm feelings to New Yorkers' hearts. I mean, we are, I think, a, a fairly kind and welcoming people I agree. for the most part. I think we, I think we get a bad get a, rap. I think New Yorkers it, yeah. get a bad rap. I, right. New Yorkers can be loud, but I, sure. I think they can be courteous and, and helpful. And helpful. Yeah. yeah. They mm-hmm. look out for each other. They look out for strangers. Sometimes they might give a little ribbon to a tourist who doesn't know where they're going. But Yeah. Or a corner outfielder who bats sure. 160. <laughs> sure. But in my time living there, I saw people be you know, helpful and generous and Mm -hmm. exercise care and have a sense of community. And I think that that is all true. Yeah. So, you know. It's not as if we root for people to move here and be unhappy and fail, especially not if they're playing for our baseball teams. Right, you'd rather they be Start out wanting them to do well. However, when they do fail, (laughs) it's like, yep, yep. Couldn't handle New York like you seem me to enjoy that as a, a as bit. a New Yorker. Yeah, I can say oh, I can clearly handle New York. Yeah. Joey Gallo just couldn't handle it. Couldn't you know, hack it in my high pressure New York job, <laughs> where all right. of us just go about our business and constantly get booed when we're bad at our jobs. Right, <laughs> we leave that part of it out. But it's hey, we're in New York. We can handle it. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere, etc. So maybe Joey Gallo doesn't care anymore because he figures well, he salted the earth. Here he was bad. His rep with Yankees fans is ruined anyway, and he's not playing here anymore. So it's not his problem, except when he's a visiting player. But I just think the timing, like if he had gone to LA and continued to be bad, sure, then it would be less compelling. People would be maybe less likely to conclude, or at least would have a a flimsier case that the problem was New York as opposed to something else. Whereas right. if he's great before. He comes here and then he's good after he leaves here. Then it's like this was the opposite of the sun and Kal-El or something. This is like sapping his powers. New York is his kryptonite as opposed to some other issue that was plaguing him at the time. So 
maybe double-edged sword for Joey Gallo on the one hand. He's hitting again, so that's great. Yeah. And a new fan base can embrace him. Yeah. On the other hand, any can't-handle-New-York reputation that he cultivated here is perhaps solidified with every hit he gets as a Dodger. And look, you know another place that people are obnoxious about? L.A. <laughs> <laughs> sure, yeah. Who's to say you just can't handle L.A.? That could yeah. be hard to handle, too. Right, and like I get to say that because I'm from Seattle, and we are programmed to be suspicious of Californians in a way that doesn't reflect well on yeah. us either. Well, New Yorkers, too. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, the number of people in Arizona who are like, people in Arizona used to drive well, and then all these Californians moved here, and now the roads <laughs> are unworkable. I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. I don't I think I tend to think that that's probably not true. Like everyone thinks that everyone from the rival state right. is a worse driver than they are. People from Wisconsin think that people from Illinois can't drive and vice versa. Mm-hmm. I'm just naming the places I've lived, you know, is really kind of <laughs> what yeah, it comes I think down that to. Part of, at least is true of pretty much everywhere. But right. yeah, there's there's some rivalry or animosity between New York and LA, at least going from east to west. I don't know how strong it is going from west to east, but right. going from New York to LA and then suddenly things click for him. It's like, oh yeah, LA, of course he can handle it there he can make it there or if he had gone to somewhere in the heartland some smaller city a smaller media environment which i guess anywhere would have been a smaller media environment but a notably small one then it would have been oh can't handle the the bright lights the big city could only thrive in texas in arlington anyway i'm glad joey gallo is doing better at least offensively happy to see it i just think that all of us would be well served all of us this is not about new yorkers this is not about los angelinos this is not about seattleites this is not about are they phoenicians what are people <laughs> from the valley called i should know that i live here now but what i'm saying yeah. is we would all be well served to remember that the ultimate move the ultimate zets the like ah, i gotcha we should all be don draper in the elevator talking to Ginsburg saying, I don't think about you at all. Like that's the power (laughs) move, right? It's like, and and you know what? Joey Gallo did not exhibit this power move. New Yorkers Mm -hmm. did not exhibit this power move. Right. Los Angelinos are just excited Joey Gallo is playing well. So they're like, we don't have to worry about stuff. We're very happy it's sunny here all the time. He showed weakness in some minds, I think. Now, I would say that it is healthy to express your feelings and your emotions right. in that way. But but for some, it's like, oh, if you acknowledge that you're having a hard time with the fans, then that just goads them even further because now you have shown that they're getting in your head. And look, I'm anti-booing in general when I actually was a fan. Yeah. I didn't boo. I mean, there were players who did not perform well. I was not pleased by their performance, but I did not express myself via boos. Now you're entitled to. You pay your ticket. You can boo if you want. Keep it respectful, hopefully, but you're free to boo. But it does seem counterproductive. Now, I think it probably rolls off a lot of players' backs, but Joey Gallo, it it seemed to bother him, at least beyond a certain point. And if your goal is that you want the player to play better, I don't know that booing has ever been a great motivator. Perhaps there are players who are actually motivated by that. They're so incensed by the fact that you're booing me. How dare you? Well, now I'm going to raise my game to show that you're wrong and, and prove the doubters wrong. 
Maybe, but I would guess that maybe it's just as common to get kind of down in the dumps if everyone in a stadium is booing you. That doesn't sound like much fun. Now, if a opposing fan base is booing you, that could be motivation for right. sure because then right. it's a sign of respect and fear. But if your own fans are booing you, well, that's just kind of demoralizing, right? So I don't know what the ratio of like if you have cases where it had any effect on the player, got to be more made him worse than made him better. I would I think guess. so. Right. So it seems counterproductive if your actual goal is to have that player play better than being supportive or at least neutral. Seems like it would actually get you closer to that goal. But I guess it's tough to take that long view when you get the immediate cathartic satisfaction right. of boo. <laughs> boo, boo, boo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like New York very much. It's not a... I don't want people to think. <sighs> <laughs> it's not like other places aren't expensive, you know. It's not mm-hmm. like other places don't involve tiny housing, you know, very small, expensive mm-hmm. housing. Yep. I don't, I just, I'm just saying, like, you know. It's the top of the heap, Meg, top of the list. Yeah, and it's funny because they're like, oh, he's exhibiting weakness. And I was like, my impression of New Yorkers while I lived there was not that they were like an unemotional people. It's not like they're like, we are stoic, all of us. It's like, no, they like they have feelings. Sometimes they yell about them. And like, it's a, it's a huge, wildly and wonderfully diverse place. So there are all kinds of people who have all kinds of relationships to feelings, mm-hmm. yelling, yeah. loudness, kind of like I'm. <laughs> Kind of yelling now. It's a big, it's a big, beautiful, diverse, expensive, crowded little spot. So <laughs> there you it's go. It's like a, a sort of state of nature, lawless type thing where when you show that it gets in your head at all, then it just encourages people. It's like if you see a bear and you're supposed to yell at the bear and scare off the bear instead of running away from the bear. Do I have my bear <laughs> situation handling right? I don't right. know. Never really been face to face with a bear myself, at least close enough that I had to decide to do something about it. But You know, generally, like, you run, the quarry runs, and the predator gives chase, right? So Mm -hmm. there's almost a very primitive elemental thing when it comes to fandom, and someone sort of admits that you're in their head, that they have heard you boo, and now, oh, now they're in for it because they have admitted that the booing got to them. So It's just, uh, I don't know, it's a funny, it's a funny Thing. Must be some some toxic masculinity must be at work somewhere in here. I would imagine. So I don't even. I wouldn't even. <laughs> I've already. I've already said too much, Ben. You know. I've invited all kinds of responses. Mm-hmm. You know. I don't know. Andrew Benintendi, by the way, he is batting two eleven as a Yankee, much right. higher than Joey Gallo, ninety three WRC plus, right. and. Not totally unexpected, I suppose. He had a 366 BABIP as a Royal. Now he has a 279 BABIP as a Yankee. His numbers have plunged accordingly. He was not hitting for a ton of power as it was. Not that he can't contribute in other ways, but just saying that's a storyline I will be following, which is not to say that if Gallo the Dodger outhits Benintendi the Yankee, then we will point and jeer at Brian Cashman and say, oh, see, you should have stuck with Gallo because, again, there were extenuating circumstances that I think dictated a trade perhaps. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like maybe we look at this, maybe the way to interpret this so that we can all embrace a new paradigm is to think of trading him 
as an act of generosity, right? Yeah. Toward mm-hmm. Joey Gallo. Maybe he was saying this isn't a matter of weakness. Like some places are just not a great fit for everybody. And that's not, you know, that's nobody's fault. That's just the way things go sometimes. And you, like many others, will strike out west, see what's what. I mean, he is probably still going to strike out west because oh, yeah. he's Joey Gallo. But, mm-hmm. you know, to, to move on. And, and then it's about showing human kindness and not about booing. So we can just reframe it. We can do a little switcheroo. <laughs> there's no kindness in baseball. What are you talking about? And it's like there's nowhere to sit down when you're at restaurants. You're all crammed into the bar. (laughs) I wrote about this for Short Relief a billion and a half years ago and got like a lot of Twitter responses from people from New York. And I was like, it's fine. I just (laughs) had a different experience of it than you. Gosh. (laughs) So speaking of former Rangers... We oh. talked about one yesterday. <laughs> yeah, how was that I don't way? have a generous interpretation of this move. Sorry, I can't. <laughs> I can't do a switcheroo. Can't. Can't salvage it. I don't think. So last time we talked about a Rangers managerial firing. This time we are talking about not a general managerial firing, but a head of baseball operational firing. John Daniels is not running the Rangers baseball ops department anymore yeah. for the first time in. Almost two decades. What was his tenure? 17 years, something like that. I believe he was the fourth longest tenured head of a baseball operations department after Billy Bean and Brian Cashman and Kenny Williams. So the Daniels reign was long lasting, brought some success, not a lot lately. And that seems to have gotten him canned. And the former Ranger, whom he brought in as his lieutenant, as his GM, Chris Young, he's now the top person in that department. Seems like a capable guy. But this is interesting timing, right? It's interesting, I think, to talk about a head of baseball operations being dismissed immediately after a manager is dismissed because usually there's like a little bit of a grace period between those two things where it's like whoever's running the front office, you can jettison the manager and maybe that buys you some time. There's some scapegoating that goes on there. Oh, it's the manager's fault. So now we'll get a new manager and we'll try our luck again. And then if you continue to struggle, well, now the head of the baseball operations department, their head is on the chopping block. But This was just rapid fire one after the other, which is interesting because it seemed as if Daniels had been involved in the Woodward firing to the extent that I could tell. Like he seems to have commented on it. So I don't know what was dictated from on high or whether the hammer just fell on him immediately after it fell on Woodward. It's just sort of a strange sequence of (sighs) events, right? It's so weird. Yeah. Yeah, and the like the quotes that have come out after they're not great, Ben. Like it seems to not be popular with Rangers interim manager Tony Beasley, who said, and here I'm quoting Joseph Hoyt from the Dallas Morning News. Seems like a reasonable outlet to be covering the Rangers, who said That he was grateful for John Daniels and called him a friend. I don't take any joy in speaking about this today. Usually I don't mind answering questions, but today I do. (laughs) 
it's like okay and then you know he informs he being ray davis informs daniels of his decision and then told young so young didn't have an opportunity to talk him out of it and so it seems like there has just been some sort of breakdown of communication from the ownership group to the front office and a lot of what we said about chris woodward i think applies here but even more so because it's not like daniels is responsible for on field in the moment decision making the way that Woodward is like we had said maybe they've looked at his managerial choices particularly in one run games and like they found them wanting and wanted to move on and maybe that's true but for Daniels like I guess the fundamental question is for me what was ownership's expectation of how good the Rangers were going to be coming into the season because as we said when Woodward was filed like I think that we looked at their off-season moves and assess them as they like these free agents. They know those free agents will not be available to them a year from now when they might think they're better or anticipate being better. And so they're going to sign those guys now so that they have them two or three years from now when they anticipate being good again. And yeah, they're going to have to kind of like eat salary for lack of a better term for the interim, but that's fine because they really like these guys and these guys aren't available every year. So you got to get them now. And if that's the case, then this makes very little sense to me because if everyone was on board with that plan, like we're getting better, but we still have holes. How do you end up in this position? Because like, I think you can look at some of the Rangers, other potential additions, aspects and players in their young core and be like, well, okay, Young has been hurt and Jack Leiter's season hasn't been very great. So you have some underperformance on the farm, but like that's always a possibility with prospects. And are you really worse this year than you thought you were going to be? Like maybe some, but probably not super dramatically because the binary you're dealing with is probably, are we a playoff team or aren't we? And so I just find myself kind of mystified. I just find myself kind of mystified by this. Less Chris Woodward, but still Chris Woodward. I find myself a little... Like, did Ray Davis think they were going to be good? Well, I guess it depends what he was told and what he was sold, right? And I don't know what conversations went on. I mean, if Daniels talked him into making those expenditures because he said that they were ready to compete and ready to be good, then I guess it might make sense that Davis was upset with the actual results this season. So I don't know if that is the message that was delivered to him, but I guess that is conceivable. I mean, it is fairly rare, I think, for teams to make big expenditures the way that they did, not intending to be good until a year or two or whatever down the road, right? I mean, maybe they should do that more often. Like, I don't think it was completely off base or just impossible to fathom what they were thinking there, as you said, but it's not common, right? I mean, usually teams, they start spending when they're like on the cusp of contention or they see themselves that way, right? And then it's like, okay, we need to go get some big free agents to put us over the top. And so I think there was maybe some consternation over like, wait, did the Rangers see themselves as good right now? Like, do they think they can contend currently? And if not, Does it make sense to make your moves now? Maybe it does if you look at the players who are available, but who knows? Maybe someone will be available the year after that, and you never know who's going to be a free agent and Carlos Correa opts out or whatever it is. You know, things can happen. So it was an unusual sequence, I think, that they did that. Again, I'm, I'm not saying it didn't make any sense, but it 
raised some eyebrows. It's like, oh, look at the Rangers. They're they're going for it, it seems like, and yet their roster does not seem fully rounded out yet. So often it seems like to convince an owner to open up the pocketbook and to spend big, they probably have to be convinced that they're going to see some real returns right away or the team is going to have a big attendance boost or they're going to contend immediately, right? Or otherwise, sometimes it can be tough to pry those funds out of them. So I guess to me how perplexing it is, I I think it's sort of perplexing just because I don't know that the long-term outlook for the Rangers has changed all that much since the season started, right? I mean- I don't think it has. Yeah. So if Davis's expectations- were upset by their results this season, then I guess it makes more sense. And maybe they would have been unrealistic expectations. And then I guess the question is, was he given those unrealistic expectations by Daniels and or Woodward? Or did he just come to that conclusion himself or get impatient? I don't know, not having been privy to those conversations. But, you know, like just big picture, I mean, Daniels has been there a very long time and they have not been competitive for the past several seasons and they had a bunch of issues with replenishing their farm system, right, and developing players and turning prospects into productive major leaguers. Speaking of Gallo, he was like basically the only one of that crop who really did pan out. So, you know, that might make someone in a little bit of danger, right? That that might make your chair a little wobbly when you've been there for that long. I mean, in some of these cases, like these guys were in those positions for so long that it's like they're an institution, right? Like obviously the A's are terrible right now for reasons not directly related to Billy Bean. Like they just refuse to spend on anything, but no one's thinking like, oh, Billy Bean's going to lose his job. I mean, Billy Bean like is that franchise <laughs> at this point, right? And and Cashman to an extent with the Yankees too, and Williams has been there forever. And, and all of them have just been through so many ups and downs already that it's like, well, it's just another down cycle. It, it almost seems like a lifetime appointment with a few of these executives sure. in a business and, and in positions where turnover is frequent and expected. So I guess you could say that in that sense, like Daniels has had a really good run, right? Like he had a, a long time in that job and hasn't won a World Series and hasn't been competitive in the past few years. And, you know, maybe the farm system, I mean, I, I guess it's getting better, right? But it was fallow for a while there. And maybe once Preller left and some of the international talent dried up, I mean, they're certainly like quibbles you can have with Daniels. Sure. I don't know whether he's done a great job or a passable job or a below average job or whatever. Like he's he's not necessarily like the model executive over the past several seasons, although people seem to like and respect him quite a bit. But I guess those are my thoughts about how confusing this is. Like I certainly did not expect to see today that John Daniels had been fired right yeah. after Woodward. I mean, it's weird. It's weird. The timing is definitely weird. And Davis said he had decided to do this before the Woodward news, but had not told Daniels and Young about it. So, right. yeah, there does seem to be some kind of communication issue going on. There's a, a sequencing issue, perhaps. Well, and I think it's important to note, and like Davis has also said, like they're not going to spend like they did last winter. And they did, you know, commit to a significant increase in payroll, but also that payroll increase brought them from having like, a payroll in the bottom third of the league to being like in the middle of the league. So it's not as if, you know, 
Like, that's a big market. They have a new ballpark. Like, I just, I get that the sequencing in terms of roster construction is a little different than what we often see, but it's not unprecedented. And for some of the teams that have done it, it has worked out really well. Like, we didn't think that the Padres were going to be ready to go when they signed Manny Machado. And then they were better than they expected to be. And they were like, wow, it's really nice we have this Manny Machado lying around because he's a really good baseball player and we're like ready to go a little earlier than we anticipated. They're quite literally 15th right now. Mm -hmm. And then you say you're not going to spend this winter, but you clearly still have holes in your roster. And even if you didn't know that at the beginning of the season, despite the fact that you should have, like it should be clear to you now that you need reinforcements, that you need additional arms in that rotation, among other things, even if you are keeping Martin Perez. Like it's just, I don't know. I I find it, I find it flummoxing, Ben. Mm -hmm. I find it weird. Right. And you're right. Like it's not as if Daniels is above reproach and it could be that, they were just like, look, we're not moving in the direction that we want to, but it seems as if you should have a better handle on what that direction is going to be like on January 1st instead mm-hmm. of yeah, you know, right. today. Right. Yeah. If Davis is thinking, hey, I signed all these big free agents and we're not doing well and I'm not just going to throw good money after bad or something. I mean, that's short-term thinking and hopefully he was not led to believe that they were done, that it was like mission accomplished after right. those signings because either you continue to spend and flesh out that roster or you did throw away that money in a sense right. because you're not going to get good enough with just those players. So look, their farm system is up to sixth, I believe, on the board at Fangraphs now, it looks like. So I think that, that, has that really is true. ticked up. And so that's why you might say it's Odd timing, just even apart from the Woodward timing, just because if you were committed to Daniels enough that you were going to have him be the one to decide how to hand out that money over the past offseason, and also you have the farm system seemingly being built up again, although they still have to prove that they can turn prospects into productive big leaguers, but it seems like not even a full season after doing that with what seems like some pretty lousy luck that is suppressing their record here. Right. I don't know what Ray Davis's understanding of Pythagorean <laughs> record and run differential is, but hopefully that has been communicated to him, you know, and hopefully he's not just being like, oh, don't give me those excuses. No, there's something to that excuse. I mean, they've only been outscored by five runs. So if they had the record that they quote unquote should have based on that, then maybe these moves were not made, right? So if you are making moves based on just a historically bad performance in one-run games, and I'm not saying that's the only issue there, but if you are putting so much stock into that that you are making wholesale changes, then that might be rash. So it's odd. I'm not going to come out and and say that it's a terrible firing or something and and that this will uh, plunge the Rangers into further disrepair. I just, I don't have enough information to know what was going on behind closed doors and what was being said or if there was some kind of communication issue or personality clash, who knows. Right. But just from the outside, it does seem odd in certain ways. Seems odd. Yeah. What also seems odd, I have yet another segue to a former Ranger here who has just lost his job. And I was going to bring this up on our last episode, and I'm glad I held off a day because Elvis Andrus was released by the A's, and this seems weird to me. So I was going to bring up that 
they had started to play him less, that they had not quite benched him, but basically demoted him from being a starting player, which seemed fishy. I mean, fishy is maybe even making it sound too ambiguous. Like, it's pretty clear what was happening here. He had a vesting option. So his contract had a vesting player option for next season that would kick in if he got to 550 plate appearances. And for quite a while, he was on pace to get there. And then they started playing him more sparingly. Yeah. And now they have released him. Yeah. Now you're entitled to release whomever you want and you still get your guaranteed money for that season. But this does seem like I don't know what the grounds for a grievance are exactly, but like, yeah, it seems like you might be exploring your options here because the thing is, Elvis Andrus has been good. Like, at least A is good, right? right? Like he is the third most valuable player on the Oakland A's yeah. this year, according to Fangraphs War. Now, yeah. that's a low bar. <laughs> I mean, there aren't many good players on the A's anymore because they traded them all. But still, like it is kind of odd to just release one of your best players. I mean, it's pretty transparent what is happening there. Yeah. So I don't know like how defensible that is like he's their second best position player behind Sean Murphy and actually I think Frankie Montas <laughs> was in between Murphy and Andrews so <laughs> Frankie Montas is no longer an A either so I believe he might just be the second most valuable A at this yeah, point he has current A well not anymore but no but he had and, and still has the second highest wins above replacement total on that team wow. so Again, like you can release whomever you want. They still have to pay him for this season and someone else can pick him up and pay him the league minimum if they want to. But that seems very fishy that they just suddenly like stopped playing him as he was like yeah, on pace to get to that threshold. And like he's having a pretty good year. I mean, he's not a star or anything, but he's having a bounce back year. You know, he's... 33. He's uh, turning 34 later this month. He's been basically, you know, a league average hitter just about as a shortstop, still seems to be competent defensively. So, like, again, he's, you know, at least like an average major leaguer at this point, which makes you one of the best Oakland A's. (laughs) So, what's your grounds for saying, no, this guy is not playable for us? Like, I know they have Nick Allen who is, I suppose, the heir apparent at that position. He's 23, but he's gotten a good amount of playing time this year, and he has a 75 OPS plus. Right. So, like, you know, yeah, you could make the argument, well, he's the shortstop of the future, and Elvis Andrews is not, so we're going to give him reps now, I suppose. But you can't exactly make the case that he is, like, pushing Andrews from a performance perspective here. So right. I don't know. I don't know whether an actual grievance is a possibility here, but I would be aggrieved, I think, if yeah. I were Elvis Andrews. Well, and it's interesting because it's like last year he got, am I remembering this right? He got hurt like maybe on the last day of the season, very late into the into the campaign. Am I remembering that correctly? He played, I don't recall. He played 146 games for Oakland last year. Yep. So he when he got hurt, and I think he like tore up some stuff. It was not great. It was pretty late in the year, and he was not good last year. He was like worse last year than this year. He had a 72 WRC+. plus. He basically accumulated as much war as he has so far in the 2022 campaign and all of 2021. So it's like if you're going to do it, like 
don't you just do it after the guy's hurt and then bed? And so it, it, it makes it seem as if the vesting stuff is, is particularly motivating at yeah. this point in, in the deal. So it's just a weird, it's not the best. It doesn't yeah. look good. And, you know, he's not, like you said, it's not like he is so spectacular of a player. You know, if Elvis Andrews was a Yankee and he were released <laughs> at this point in the calendar, we probably wouldn't think a lot of it because it's like they got a whole bunch of other guys that they got to find room for. You know, if you were a Dodger, we'd be like, eh, you know. But with Oakland, like you said, there's just not a lot of talent on that roster right now. And I think that generally when teams are in the position and sort of point in the cycle that the A's are, I get the argument for like seeing what you have in young guys and in giving young guys opportunities and and seeing how they do at the big league level, but you don't want to do that like and do shady labor stuff at the same mm-hmm. time. Like that seems yeah not, not the, the, the best. A's are like strangers to pushing the envelope no. when it comes to not spending. Like this right. is totally in character. Like no one's under any illusions about the A's trying to compete this year or anything. Like right. they've stripped that roster down to the studs. But just having that vesting option there. And speaking of, uh, well, another former Ranger, I guess, and the Yankee shortstop you just invoked there, Elvis Andrus has double the fan graphs war that Isaiah Kiner-Falefa has for the Yankees this season. Yeah. How about that? Mm-hmm. How about that? Right. And then you look at like who they recalled in his in his stead. And I think they brought up Sheldon Noisy, who like yes. hasn't been superlative at the big league level like i know his triple a numbers this year are good but also like he's not spectacular so when you do that it makes it really makes it feel like this is about the money it's like all of these moves taken in concert are like oh you really just didn't want him to hit his vesting numbers that's kind of gross (laughs) yeah it's pretty transparent it seems transparent Right. I mean, and look, Andrus is going to be fine. He's uh, he's making a cool 14 plus million this year. He's made 134 sure. million in his career. Yeah. Not saying that like he necessarily needs the money personally, although I don't know, maybe he does. Maybe he is a, a wise investor or a great philanthropist or something. But it's the principle of the thing, at least right. from the Players Association's perspective or yeah. from the player's perspective, right? It's He's entitled to the money that he got in his contract. And if he's playable and he yeah. certainly is especially on that team then it just seems like you can't just not play him just right. because he might make more money anyway i don't yeah. know we'll see whether any action is taken over that but it was attracting my attention even before he was released and now that he's released it's like oh well okay you're not even gonna pretend but that's just that's what happened there so yeah. we'll see whether that is actionable but Kind of got a raw deal because he was having a nice year after a, a few years of offensive struggles. Well, and can I say the following? It's like uh, you never – it's always a shame when the best pun associated with a person's name is mean. Because you don't want to say Elvis has left the building. This sucks for him. Like you're not mm-hmm. going to enjoy that pun. That's like the 97th most important thing about this this particular sequence of events, but I have a pun brand to maintain. So yes, you do. That's a thought that occurred to me. I was like, oh, I wouldn't tweet that. It's tacky. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And in other contract news, I guess we should note that oh, yeah. Atlanta signed yet another player to yeah. an extension. In this case, Michael Harris II yeah. signed to an eight-year extension, $72 million, which will take him through the 2030 season with club options beyond that. Yep. I have not really crunched the numbers here myself and arrived at a conclusion about the club friendliness or player friendliness of this deal. I don't know whether you have either or whether Fangraphs will be publishing content on it's such a topic. You should ask that. <laughs> it's, it's so funny you should ask that question, Ben, because mm. we indeed will be publishing something about that very question mm-hmm. tomorrow. I said to Dan, I was like, can you zip this up for me? And he was yeah. like, yeah, I can. Mm-hmm. Has he yet? <laughs> No, he hasn't. So I don't know what his conclusion is. So this buys out all of his ARB and pre-ARB time. It must, yeah. Mm -hmm. Plus two years of free agency with the option for two more years of free agency. Am I thinking about that math correctly? Three years of free agency because it's eight years. With options, yeah. After today after this year rather so he yes, starts, starts this extension season, I think, yeah yeah in 2023 which would have been his second pre-arb year and i don't know where he stands from a super two perspective i think he was probably not super two i don't remember it doesn't matter so i don't know it'll probably come up feeling kind of late because these often do but i guess mm-hmm. the good news from his perspective is that he is still only 21 mm-hmm. it is buying out our beers, but he also might just be the rookie of the year in the NL. So <laughs> right. he's probably taken a pretty meaningful haircut even on his arbitration years if he keeps playing the way that he has, not to mention the free agency years. So I started this going, I don't know, and I'm ending it thinking, why'd you sign this though? <laughs> but I don't know if that's fair because uh, it's still $72 million. I don't know. They sure they sure get these a lot. They sure get these they done sure a lot, do. don't they? Yeah. Is he the rookie of the year or is Spencer Strider the rookie of the year? I don't know. It's one <laughs> of the two his of them probably. Yeah. I, haven't thought, I haven't thought a lot about it yet. No, neither have I. I think it's probably one of those two. A lot of mm-hmm. deserving rookie of the year discussions and candidates in both leagues, candidly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean- Harris has been really good and and has probably exceeded expectations for what he would do as a rookie. He's got a 126 WRC plus. He gives you good defense and speed. He's really been a big boost to that team. I guess you could say that there's some risk in that he's a free swinger, certainly. Right. He's swung at. uh, That was the knock on him as a prospect. Yeah, and it has turned out to be true, although he's been just fine anyway. Yep. He hasn't struck out significantly more than the league average, but he doesn't walk. You know, he's hit for power and yes. he's stolen some bases and he gives yep. you a good defense. So it all yep. works out. And so I guess there is perhaps some downside risk if maybe the, the plate discipline catches up to him as he continues to make trips around the league, et cetera, possibly. Right. But It's obviously a good sign to come up at 21 and be this good. And even if he doesn't hit this well, he should still contribute in other areas. So that kind of cushions you. Yeah. The defense gives him some meaningful wiggle room Mm -hmm. because it is so good. Man, yeah. Like really a lot of strong Adley Rutschman, man. He sure did catch up to Julio, didn't he? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, no. Turns out he's pretty good, too. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's almost like he was the number one prospect at all of baseball <laughs> or something. I don't want to take away from the Michael Harris of it all, but I do want to just run through the, the at least the position player side of the, the rookie leaderboard. And this is sure. qualified hitter, so 
there might be a couple of guys I'm missing, but we got Julio at 3.1, Adley at 3.0. And then you know who is second or third rather? Who? Stephen Kwan. Oh, of course. Kwan. Mm-hmm. Kwan. Yeah. Pena kind of fell off a little bit, huh? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Look at that. Anyhow, I don't know how I feel about this deal. I think that the appropriate default posture entering contemplation of extensions like this is one of skepticism with like a sousant of understanding that when you're a very young person and you're presented with the opportunity to like bank $72 million, that that's going to be pretty appealing and that a lot of people are willing to take a discount to ensure that. But I do wish that we were maybe better about thinking about the potential enriching value of arbitration because some of these guys, like, they make really good money in ARP, you know? Mm -hmm. And these uh, pre-ARB extensions, I don't know that they're realizing as much as they could. And maybe, like, clearly, he's comfortable realizing exactly this much, right? Like, if he doesn't earn a dollar more than this deal, he thought that was a good enough sum to sign for it. But, mm-hmm. you know, like, it can be a good thing to go through arbitration. You can make can make some good money that way. And I understand that, like, the defense is a big part of the profile for Harris. So maybe there was concern there that, like, that wouldn't be rewarded quite the same way. But it's not like he's not hitting. So don't know. Right. The nice thing from an Atlanta fan's perspective is that you can just kind of get used to this team because it's yeah. going to be around a while. Yeah, like, going to be around for a good minute. Jeff Passan tweeted the list of the Braves' current core that is just under team control for some time, whether it's because they came up recently or they've already signed an extension. So Austin Riley through 2032, Matt Olson through 2030, Harris through 2030 with those options, Acuna 2028, Von Grissom 2028, Ozzy Albies 2027, Strider 2027, William Contreras 2027, Kyle Wright 2026, Max Fried 2024. So no guarantees of anything, but Nice to just be able to pencil in large (laughs) swaths of your roster for that long in advance and almost makes it more curious. Not that it wasn't curious at the time, but you kept everyone except Freddie Freeman. It seems like like the the one guy who seemed like he was extremely likely to be a lifetime Atlanta Brave. He's the one who left somehow. The guy you kept for so long, right? Mm -hmm. The guy who you're like, no, no, we're not trading him. We're not moving on from this guy. We want him to be part of the next good Atlanta team. And then there he went. Mm-hmm. It's probably it, it helps, I would imagine, if you, I don't know, it's like dominoes falling exactly. But if a bunch of prominent players on your team sign extensions, it's got to help you sign the subsequent ones, I would think. I don't I know if so. there's, yeah, I don't know if there are enough case studies that we could actually prove that yeah Yeah. but it seems like instinctively that it strikes me as as right correct as the right instinct if if you're a young player who came up recently and you see that acuna and albies and all these other guys have signed these big deals or you're more established stars and riley and olsen etc like there's probably a maybe a, a peer pressure element sure. to it and even just sort of a subconscious, well, they all stayed, right? And and it makes you more confident that, well, this team is going to be contending and right. I want to be part of this. And if I like being part of this team now, I have some certainty about who my teammates will be and we can just keep the gang together here and right. it'll be fun and we can have a long period of sustained success. It's like everyone else is signing extensions. <laughs> maybe I should sign an extension too. So I don't know. I would imagine that that 
makes it an easier sell as opposed to, you know, if you're the Nationals trying to talk Juan Soto into staying, let's say, with all the uncertainty on that team, that roster. Obviously easier if you're currently contending and you don't have ownership uncertainty, et cetera. But yeah, that's got to help. You know, The more extensions you sign, probably the easier the next extension is to convince someone to sign. Yeah, because, you know, it's like you think about this to take the most extreme counter example, you know, you think about like you're Juan Soto and you're offered all this money for a long time, but you look around and you're like, what, what is this team going to be? You have no sense of it because you don't have any idea like what the next ownership group is going to be willing to commit to. So you don't know if you're signing a deal to just like be on a loser for a long time. Whereas if you're Michael Harris II, you're like, oh, a lot of these guys are really good and they're sticking around. So maybe I want to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. I had a couple emails maybe. I guess we should also note that Joey Votto is done for the year. Yeah. Yeah. So- that's unfortunate. Yeah. I really am surprised by the season that he had this year after yeah. the season that he had last year. No one wants to see Joey Votto struggle or get hurt. So that's rough. And it's a torn rotator cuff, which can be a pretty serious injury, <laughs> maybe more so for a pitcher than a hitter, but can't be good for either. And yeah. this is apparently a problem that has been plaguing him to some degree since 2015, although it's gotten a lot worse lately. So obviously last year he was having no trouble banging, so it could not have been bothering him as much. But, you know, he should be roughly ready for the start of next season in theory, hopefully. I don't think we know what the quality of his banging was, Ben. I don't know that we were... It was not high this season. For me to that. I was making a, I was doing a, a, a double entendre, Ben. I figured. Yeah, yeah. double mm-hmm. entendre. Well, we wish you well, Joey, and uh, we will follow your viral TikToks till then. <laughs> so one question we got, which is Braves related, this is from Christian, Patreon supporter, who said the Braves recently posted yet another quarter of significant financial gains, presumably aided by post-World Series hype. I meant to mention, by the way, the Rangers kind of maybe missed out on the new ballpark bump just because of the pandemic. So yeah. that was unfortunate timing for them, too. Anyway, could be contributing to the frustration. And the question continues and playing a competitive team, if you could force any other organization to release their books from the past five years and continuing through the next five years, which one would you choose? Would you attempt a strategic choice to make a point about league-wide financials, or would you just try to absolutely embarrass a particular owner by disproving their ridiculous lies? (laughs) So Atlanta's like the one window. Yeah, right. You could probably (laughs) kill two birds with one stone there. Why are we killing birds with stones? Why are we doing that? And with baseballs, by the way. I guess it happens if you're Randy Johnson. But I think, you know, the Braves are the one window we get into team finances because of Liberty Media just being forced to release some numbers. And everyone else, they can sort of say what they want and it's tough to disprove them. So, yeah, I would try, I guess, if you only get one, make the most of it, right? So the thing is that, like, 
you don't have to search that hard to find an owner who has probably said something about baseball being bad business. I mean, it seems like most of them have said that at some point, especially like in the past few years, what with the pandemic and collective bargaining and everything, a lot of them have given voice to those ideas. So that's a pretty big potential pool there. As for what would be most valuable to make the point that hey, this is a a viable business for almost anyone, even if it's not a big market, quote unquote, team. It's probably the Pirates, Uh, right? Yeah. Pirates or the A's would be top of the list there. I think that if we want to achieve both goals, I'm saying that instead of killing birds with stones, because just Mm -hmm. leave birds alone. Birds are great. That probably would do it. Yeah. Yeah, my initial inclination was the Cubs because Oh, sure, yeah. That would be a good one the, too. The biblical losses quote. Right. Which is yeah. probably the most visible one. So if you could prove that the losses were not biblical or perhaps were not losses at all. Right. Then that would probably go a long way sure. to puncturing the facade. And then also just the way that the Cubs have behaved with tearing down that roster rather than adding to it. Right. I think if you wanted to do maximum shaming or pressuring of owners to contend, which is in the best interests of many fans for owners to spend, then I think the Cubs would be a pretty decent one. I guess the thing is that like, because the Cubs are a big market and because they draw well even when they're not winning generally, maybe you wouldn't get as much bang for your buck in terms of – proving that, yeah, the Cubs have made money or that they could have spent more. Maybe that's obvious, even though they have said things to the opposite effect. But I think that would be good because it's a high visibility team, big fan base, lots of frustration about the lack of investment in the team at times. So I think that might be my pick. I have to think about it a bit more. Yeah, but see, here's the thing, Ben. We didn't name an entire segment or phenomena after the Cubs. We named that after Bob Nutting. Yes, right. But he's such a a object of scorn already as it is. I mean, I don't know. I I don't know that he would care about being shamed (laughs) is the thing. Like, if you were to release the numbers, I guess it might limit what he could say, but... I don't know whether anyone's buying what he's selling anyway, so maybe he'd just be like, yeah, you got me. I'm I'm making money here because I'm not spending on my roster. Like, I don't know. I assume that like the Players Association has access to some figures and that comes up in grievances when teams don't spend even the minimum amount that they're supposed to spend, what with revenue sharing and such. So I don't know. Maybe it would almost be like they're – too obvious a candidate. It's like everyone kind of knows what they're up to already. So I'm going to stick with Cubs, but I mean, Cubs, yeah. is, Cubs is a very good one. I don't mean to say that that's, uh, that's not yeah. a Lots good of great choice. choices. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Good question. Won't happen as far as we know, but, <laughs> but good question. <laughs> I mean, we just need a brave whistleblower to release yeah. the books. Not an Atlanta brave whistleblower. Any other team. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So here's a question from Please Andrew. leave my weird laugh in. Please leave it in. Don't take <laughs> it out. Wouldn't dream of it. Okay. Yeah. Andrew, Patreon supporter, said this past week was the MLS All-Star Game, something which I wasn't very familiar with, but it was in my hometown of Minneapolis, so I familiarized myself with the event. 
In the MLS All-Star Game, the MLS All-Stars compete against the Mexican League All-Stars, the Liga LX All-Stars, as opposed to the traditional conferences versus conference setup most other leagues have. This got me thinking, what if the MLB All-Star Game worked the same way? What if MLB put together an All-Star team and competed against, say, the NPB or KBO All-Stars in a friendly exhibition instead of the current All-Star Game format? This would make the Midsummer Classic a lot more meaningful to fans while not being meaningful to the actual season at hand. There's precedent for this, right? I mean, I don't think that it's taken the place of the actual All-Star game, but there have been times when MLB has sent a roster of guys to Japan to compete against MPB mm-hmm. teams, right? Am I yeah, completely sure. There have been yeah, exhibition that? games, yeah. and obviously there have been many barnstorming tours yeah. in the past, and, and you have some international competitions as right. it is, and you have the WBC coming up, I guess you could say. That suffices, but I see the appeal of having only the best involved in the competition. Yeah, I think it would be really fun. I, I guess the trick of it, the thing that would perhaps make it unappealing to some is that You're going to struggle to feature a guy from every team. And even if you decide you don't care about that, right, it's unimportant to you that whatever, you know, that the Reds have an all-star or whatever, it seems like it would be hard to get everyone in to play in any kind of a meaningful way. But that's fine. You just have to sort of change your understanding of what the all-star game is supposed to accomplish. But I think that that could be kind of cool as a way to to mix it up. You know, maybe the way that we want to approach the all-star game is to have a, a couple of different formats that we sort of like cycle through and try stuff like, yeah, this year we're going to play against, you know, NPB All-Stars and, you know, next year we're going to let team captains draft a roster of guys. So there we just pick a bunch of All-Stars and then they get to decide how they play against each other and we don't have mm-hmm. to hew to the ALNL thing or we do, but, or, you know, like we could just try a couple different things and, and make it different every year. Right. Or skills competition type things. I mean, you could learn probably from like the KBO All-Star sure. game has that sort of fun events, zany stuff that yeah. happens. So yeah, if you wanted to shake things up, I guess my reservations, well, first of all, we're just assuming depends where the game is held, right? Right. Like, you already have a lot of MLP players who choose not to play, you know, just because they want that right. time off or they're nursing some sort of nagging thing or plausibly are or, you know, everyone's tired at that point and could use some time off. So if you say not only do you have to play, but you have to fly overseas and there's jet right. lag and all of that. So sure. And you're assuming that the schedules line up and I think they'd be pretty close. Like I, I think the NPB All-Star game this year was like right at the same time as the MLB All-Star game, if I remember right. But you know, if they have to come here, right. do they want to? Like, do they want to be tired? Maybe they would enjoy facing that competition, but also they have some obligation to their own teams sure. and to their own fans, right? I mean, right. you know, if NPB fans watch them all year, maybe they want to go see them in the All-Star game with having to fly to the U.S. to do that. So there's that kind of consideration. Definitely. I guess there's also... The talent level consideration. Now, I I think it would be fun to be introduced to players in other leagues and have that, you know, kind of clash of different leagues. That would be entertaining. I don't know how competitive it would be. I mean, 
if you look at like the league quality of KBO, let's say, compared to MLB, like I don't know that KBO All-Stars or, you know, anything can happen in one game, but sure. that seems like it would have the potential to be pretty lopsided against MLB All-Stars. I don't know whether it would be more lopsided than just like taking a, a typical MLB team versus KBO or NPB team. I, I guess maybe the gap would be slightly smaller, I guess, if you say that perhaps the, the best players are less far removed from MLB talent than just the average player on those rosters, I suppose. But like, let's say, you know, would you want to see MLB All-Stars versus AAA All-Stars? Well, maybe you would, you know? I mean, maybe that sounds enticing to you, even if- sound nice to do to the AAA All-Stars. Right. Although they might enjoy it, getting to test themselves and, you know, play for bragging rights, as unlikely as it would be. But that's basically what it would be. Now, I mean, obviously, if you have like- one of the best pitchers in Japan, then, you know, I mean, they have a few absolute aces over there who may or may not make the majors someday, but obviously would be pitching at an extremely high level in the majors if they were to come here. So that kind of balances the playing field if you're talking about a single game. So I think it would certainly be competitive, but I don't know whether that gives people pause at all. I mean, there are just some logistical issues with the travel and everything. And maybe you say we have the WBC and we have other kinds of international competitions where you can get that if you want it. And maybe you enjoy seeing MLB All-Stars face other MLB All-Stars. You know, and also, like, does this mean that you would have to have fewer All-Stars because you only have one MLB All-Star team instead of two, Right. right? So... Then do you have fewer players who make the all-star team and is that bad? And <laughs> you wouldn't even have enough players to have a representative from every team in theory if you only had one roster. This is what have... I was saying. Right. So, yeah, there are some issues. I, I, I like where your head's at here, but I don't know. I guess I'd rather just see – well, this is an exhibition. I was going to say an exhibition. It would be that. But midseason always presents some complications. Challenges, right. Yeah. Yeah. No one wants to stick around after the season, which is. This is the other problem. (laughs) You end up doing WBC like during spring training, which is maybe the best you can do. It's always going to conflict with something or find people at a part of the schedule where they're not prepared to play. So, you know, like people are always going to put their baseball day job first, right? So even if fans would be entertained by seeing something like this. Although I have to say, and this was brought to our attention by All Bad Mitch who mm-hmm. brought a Cespedes family barbecue tweet to our attention. Right. We're going to have quite the lineup for the for Team USA for the WBC. Have you seen mm-hmm. this? Yeah. This is, I mean, like, they don't have a full roster yet, but... No. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> these guys had to play in Canada. A lot of them couldn't go, but mm. they're going to play it here, so it doesn't matter, question mark. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we got Real Muto catching. We got Goldschmidt at first base, Trevor Story, Arenado, Mike Trout, Bryce Harper, Pete Alonso at DH. Like, that's a pretty good... That's a pretty good uh, couple of guys there, you know? Mm-hmm. Definitely yep. still need a... Like a left fielder, not a yes. shortstop, but I assume that they will not field just, uh, you know, a couple of the positions. I think they'll probably do all of them, Ben. Probably. Yeah. yeah. It's got to be on their to-do list. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's end with a pass blast. This is episode 1891. So we have a pass blast from 1891 and from Richard Hirschberger. 
Saber historian and researcher and author of Strike Four, The Evolution of Baseball. And today he has for us two ideas ahead of their time. He says the first is a tale told in 1891 from a few years earlier. George Dickinson, the Sporting Life's New York correspondent, tells the story of Bill McGonagall, the Brooklyn manager from 1888 to 1890, as reported in the issue of July 18th. Quote, a good tale is one I heard recently about manager McGonagall. <laughs> Mac has one great hobby, which overshadows every other idea he has about things pertaining to baseball. He is a veritable crank on the subject of watching battery signals and making use of them. When he was manager of the Brooklyn club, he resorted to every possible device to keep his batters posted as to the kind of ball the opposing pitcher was about to deliver. Regular patrons of the game will remember Mac's habit of tapping the bats and waving his scorecard, but he had far more elaborate schemes in that nut of his. Yeah. Circumstances, however, were against his putting any of them in execution. One of them was what the boys called his electric heel tapper. I agreed to say his electric nut. <laughs> Mac wanted to place a small metal plate in the batsman's box, which should communicate by means of an underground wire with a button on the player's bench. The batters were to place on foot over the plate in the box, and it was Mac's idea to instruct them by shock what kind of a ball Mr. Pitcher was about to deliver. He went so far as to send for an expert in electricity to make an estimate on the plant. The electrician's visit was discouraging to Mac. He gave the Brooklyn manager a quiet jolly at first, but finally explained to him how utterly impracticable the idea was. In the first place, said he, you would have to use a pretty strong current to make it of any value for the purpose, and that might prove dangerous. Yeah! Then again, it would not take long for the opposing batsman to get onto the metal plate in the box, and that would spoil the scheme. So... <laughs> And Richard says the Phillies famously actually implemented a similar scheme, but wisely substituting a buzzer for an electric shock and oh, placing it no. under the third base coach rather than in the batter's box. That was, I think, something that happened in 1900, perhaps. So that came up often when Astro's sign-stealing gate was happening. I mean, right. these proposed solutions date back to the very beginning of baseball. So not surprised that Manager McGonagall's nut was <laughs> stuck on this idea. <laughs> so that was uh, one of the ideas that was ahead of its time, perhaps not safe, not practical at that point. The second idea ahead of its time was a better idea, Richard writes, again from The Sporting Life. In a letter to the editor published in the June 20th issue, a fan made a suggestion. Quote, Kindly permit the space necessary for a suggestion that will, in the writer's estimation, add greatly to the interest in our national game. Not only those who go occasionally, but the steady goers, lovers of the game, and even, quote-unquote, fans, find it difficult to recognize the visiting players and call them by name, even by the aid of the scorecard, as very few keep the score so that after the first or second inning, they are completely mixed up and questions of this kind are heard on all sides. Who is that at the bat? Who caught that fly? Who made that long slide? Etc. Particularly so is this difficulty found with the average visitor who constitutes the majority at most games. This trouble can be overcome by having the name of the player in large letters across his breast, either worked in his shirt or on a band that can be buttoned across his bosom. 
This, the writer thinks, will add greatly to the convenience and be appreciated by everyone interested in the game. Signed, a fan. And Richard writes, while this was a good idea, baseball was not yet ready for it. Some teams would start putting numbers on the backs of uniforms in 1919, and this would not be universal until 1937. Names on jerseys would first appear in 1960, and even today, not every team is on board with the program. Personally, he says, I agree with our correspondent from 1891, as do I. We were just talking about this the other day and our inability to remember uniform numbers, right? Tell us who the players are. Just give us their names. Don't shock them. I think Mm -hmm. just avoid shocking them. Look, we're going to end up with a baseball where the mound moves up and down, and we're (laughs) shocking guys, and it's all kinds of... Yeah, especially in 1891 where you couldn't Google a guy. Yeah. I mean, identify them. Come on. (laughs) You were going to (laughs) say... Or you can't be confident you're not going to kill him if you shock him, (laughs) which like... You know, yeah. famously a sport played outside most right. of the time. So seems seems dicey. I actually have a, a stat blast addendum, not from Richard. I'm freelancing here, but I've been waiting to share this little chestnut because as you will recall, July twenty second, the Blue Jays beat the Red Sox twenty-eight to five. And some people pointed out that that was the first game that ended twenty-eight to five since eighteen ninety-one. And here we are, finally in eighteen ninety-one. So I wanted to read you this one-paragraph account provided special dispatch to the St. Louis Globe Democrat. This was August 26th, 1891, and it was a game between the Chicagos and the Brooklyns. So that was the Chicago Colts at the time. They beat the Brooklyn Grooms 28-5. to So that is the future Cubs and the future Dodgers. So here is the account Filed from Chicago, August 25th, 1891. Young Anson's Colts played with the Brooklyn team today. They might even be said to have toyed with it. They batted round and round and ran round and round until bats were splintered and the scorers goaded to drink and death. And the cabbages in the field that skirt the horizon all about the south side grounds lifted up their heads and sang. Just an interesting image. Hemming pitched for Brooklyn, but more for Chicago, (laughs) which is, that is, oof, that is a devastating put down. That's rough. That was a good one. Yeah. (laughs) The Colts hit him whenever the glowing inspiration came, and at nightfall, each man in the crazy stands took home a nice succulent base hit to show to his family. (laughs) It's a spicy little account there. It's delightful. I am, I am... (laughs) Loving it. It is great. Sadly, unbylined, so I cannot give posthumous credit here, but I tip my cap to whoever wrote those words. Yeah. All right. That will do it for today. All right. I'll leave you with a bonus question and answer. This is a question from Patreon supporter Tristan, who asked, I was talking to a coworker today about my favorite hat. It's a tan hat with a blue brim with an embroidered image of the very same tan hat with blue brim on the front. A hat on a hat. My coworker said it reminded him of the classic Baltimore Orioles cap, which features the Oriole bird wearing a black and orange cap that says O's. We lamented what a missed opportunity it was for the Orioles to not feature a hat on which the Oriole bird is wearing a hat with the Oriole bird on it. This got me thinking. Are there other baseball hats, past or present, that feature hats on them? Jerseys with jerseys on them? Bats with bats on them? How deep could the recursion go? 
Now, I am neither knowledgeable about uniforms nor a hat wearer, so I was completely unqualified to answer this question. So I outsourced it to the baseball writer Cliff Corcoran, who is a baseball hat enthusiast. I figured if anyone would know, it would be Cliff. And he wrote back, I can't think of any other regular season examples from the major leagues of a cap with a cap on it, but there are some spring training or BP caps that apply. A Royals cap with a crown over the KC or R insignia, for example. Mets featuring Mr. Met. Reds featuring Mr. Redlegs. This year's Cardinals, though that last was rendered so poorly you'd never know the Cardinal had a cap on it if it wasn't an old logo, better versions of which exist. There are plenty of examples from the minor leagues where they are more likely to feature a cartoon mascot wearing a cap on their caps. In fact, it's almost commonplace. The Clinton Lumber Kings jumped to mind because I used to have one of those. That's another crown on a cap. The Hillsborough Hops may be the best example, however. Very similar to the Orioles situation, but there are countless others. I don't know of any in which the character on the cap is wearing the same character on his cap, however. So Tristan has stumped Cliff with this question. If anyone listening can think of a recursive baseball cap, a cap featuring a character who is wearing the same character on their cap, please write in and let us know. In the meantime, you can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild and signing up to pledge some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get yourself access to some perks. Ross Lambert, Brian Goldgeier, Nick E.D., Michael Melia, and Morgan Gray. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild patrons-only Discord group. It's a great group. I'm in it. You can be too if you sign up for Patreon. You also get access to monthly bonus episodes with me and Meg, plus discounts on t-shirts, playoff live streams, and more. Anyone can contact me and Meg via email at podcastfangraphs.com. You can also message us through the Patreon site if you are a supporter. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. We will be back with one more episode before the end of the week. Talk to you soon. It's all about the time. Not about the plan If it wasn't for the time I'd probably be your man See we got no control So do the best you can It's all about the time It's not about the plan It's all about